Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We have decreased the number of the uninsured by about a third. I think that what we can say is it is much more expensive and much less comprehensive than its architects were expecting. Because what people are doing is they're gaming the system. They're signing up for a few months using a ton of services and then dropping it again. Our show is about fixes. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, I'm right. and you are wrong. Yeah. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, I have a feeling that we're not going to agree with each other on everything. The Affordable Care Act is in trouble. Premiums are rising for most people in some cases dramatically, but it's also increased coverage. And to me, it's better than what came before. Right. Well, we are going to disagree about some of this, but let's let's make sure we get the, the baseline. A lot of patients are finding that their deductibles have gone up so much that they're not even seeking care in the first place. So, you know, the real question then is, can it continue in its current form? Here to help sort all this out and maybe even suggest some solutions, we have Bloomberg View columnist Megan McArdle, who covers economics and public policy for uh, for Bloomberg. She's also the author of the book, The Upside of Down, in which I actually make a very minor appearance, (laughs) and has written for Newsweek, The Atlantic, and Richard, your favorite publication, The Economist. Yeah. She'll be joining us by Skype from Washington, D.C. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're joined by our producer in the studio, Miranda Schaefer. So welcome, Megan McArdle. Thank you for having me. So, Megan, after the disaster of launching the Affordable Care Act with the website from hell, I think a lot of people have gotten the impression that things are going pretty much okay today. After all, there are a lot more people insured than before. But what's really going on? Well, uh, there are more people insured than before. The rate of the uninsured was somewhere around 10%, down from somewhere around 15%. So we have uh, decreased the number of the uninsured by about a third. We are spending on subsidies about $30 billion more than we were, uh, probably going up to around 50 this year uh, than we were before Obamacare. We have expanded Medicaid. Those numbers are a little bit harder to parse just because, um, you know, Medicare admissions tend to be rolling. People go on, they go off. Um, overall, what we're seeing is, I think, less than the critics had, you know, hoped, feared would happen. Uh, we have not seen the entire thing just sort of collapse. 
on the other hand, what we're seeing are some really bad signs, and I think that they could portend really big problems from the insurance market. Okay, well, what what are some of those really bad signs? What are the what are what adds weight to what the critics are saying about Obamacare? So the basic idea of Obamacare was what people called the three-legged stool. And when you actually start adding up all the legs, it's more like an eight-legged stool. But (laughs) um, it was, first of all, community rating, which is that you can't charge people more because they're sick unless they're smokers. That's the, the, there's a little bit of charging for age and smoking. But other than that, you can't charge people different prices. Does, does pre-existing conditions also fall into that? Yes. That is the ban on sick rating the insurance. Okay, um, so, so people who had a, a serious ailment, whether it's a skin problem or cancer, they could not be refused insurance under the, under the reforms. Right, but also you can't charge people more because they're old. You can, but it's, it's a very strict limit on how much more you can charge them for being old. And old people, of course, tend to spend a lot more on healthcare than young people. The second leg of the stool is something called guaranteed issue. And that's, that, again, goes to the pre-existing conditions. If someone wants to buy insurance from you, you have to sell it to them. You don't have a choice about it. Uh, the third leg of the stool is the mandate. And that is that if you don't buy, you get penalized. And then the fourth leg of the stool is the subsidies, because if the subsidies aren't there, then it's very difficult to uh, to get people to buy if they just don't have the money. So what's the warning sign? What's going on out there? Right. So what these things are, are, are put into place to, to avoid is, is a phenomenon called the adverse selection death spiral. What tends to happen is, look, insurance is a great deal for people who are sick suddenly. So if you're sick, you go buy it. Well, the insurers know that, and then they say, well, I've got to raise the price, so I've got, to, I've got to charge more for this insurance. Well, healthy people look at that and say, I'm going to expect to have an average of $300 of healthcare costs, and this insurance costs me $6,000 a year, thanks, but no thanks. The problem with that is then the pool is more expensive, so the insurers look at this and say, oh, oh we've got to raise premiums. So they raise premiums to $8,000 a year, and, the, and then there were people who say maybe we're spending 1500 a year who say, you know what, I'm just gonna, I can't afford that, and they drop out. What you end up with is what New York had was incredibly expensive insurance that was basically only valuable to people who were pretty sick. I went uninsured in New York's insurance market uh, in my 20s for precisely this reason. The cheapest policy I could get as a 28-year-old non-smoker was uh, something like $450, $500 a month. Miranda Schaefer. Richard, would you consider yourself healthy? Yeah. And did you opt out of insurance because you didn't really... Think you needed it, or well, I'm covered by my employer. My insurance hasn't really changed that much, um, and 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 that's true for a lot of people. So the the choice that I have under the marketplace is is different for me than it is for a lot of other people. And, and I think the real issue we have here, and, and Megan, I love this term, the adverse selection death spiral. That's going to be the name. <laughs> that's going to be the name of my next heavy metal band. <laughs> but but the real issue is is younger people who don't get sick much and tend to think they're kind of vulnerable, making what may even be a somewhat rational choice not to buy insurance at these very high rates. Or, or they get a very high deductible because they don't think they're going to be using the, the, the most serious uh, forms of coverage. Well, so the problem is actually a little, even a little more serious than that, and it comes in two parts. So the first problem is that, is that the, the administration was originally saying um, we need 40% of the people on the exchange to be between the ages of 18 and 35 in order for this to be actuarially stable. They got under 30%. And that doesn't sound like a big difference, but it's actually huge because those people are providing the subsidies for everyone else. The administration has now kind of like tried to tout, well, actually it's you know 38% young people, but they're including children in that. And children are actually not that cheap to cover because they have a lot of doctor's visits and vaccinations, et cetera. 
And the danger is that because they haven't gotten the pool they wanted, they've had to, they're, they're now in this dance of trying to keep the insurance affordable enough to attract those people in um, without, you know, sort of, well, they still have all of these coverage mandates. And so what they've done is they've created these plans that have extremely narrow doctor networks where it's very difficult. You know, you, you call up and you ask your doctor, do you take Blue Cross? And they say, yes, but not the Obamacare plan. There's been a lot of that. For most people who were expecting something like employer-based insurance, where most of your costs are covered from pretty early on in your healthcare spending, a lot of them are looking at this and complaining. So the real danger is that the healthy people look at this and say, look, this insurance is expensive because the pool is sick. It's getting more expensive because the pool is sick. I may just not buy next year. So that is, and now this problem is now looks like it is being made even worse because what people are doing is they're gaming the system. What United Health has complained about, what other insurers are also complaining about, is that outside of the normal open enrollment period, that, that, that two to three month period that we have every year where you can sign up for insurance, what they're seeing in the special enrollment period, which is for people who say, switch jobs, move states, got married, had a baby, something like that, that what they're seeing is that the people in that period have extremely high healthcare costs. They're signing up for a few months using a ton of services and then dropping it again. Okay, so so some people are, are gaming the system. Is there a response by the administration to that? Because I understand that they're trying to uh, take steps to, to change that. There is. And my understanding from talking to people, uh, the, the classic journalist formulation, sources close to the problem, uh, <laughs> is that they functionally weren't requiring documentation of these special life events. And that that was allowing people to game the system. Okay. However, I want to. I do want to say, the gaming has appeared very early on for that to be the problem. In that, like, there's usually a discovery process. It usually takes people a few years to catch on to these strategies. Right. The fact that people caught on so early is really disturbing, especially because a lot of these qualifying life events it, are, are actually pretty easy. So one of them is moving states. Well, look, if I live in Manhattan or New Jersey for that matter, uh, and I get cancer, like I can move states. <laughs> and I will if that is the difference between me paying for my cancer treatment and someone else paying for my cancer treatment. You could see people contracting sham marriages in order to get health insurance coverage. You could see people easily in a lot of areas, just Kansas City, move straight, you know, just move from Kansas to Missouri, voila. Okay, so so what about the argument, though, that this is a work in progress, that it's going to take years for things to work out. Is that a fair argument or are we well enough into Obamacare now to, to come up with a judgment and say this thing's not working? Well, it sort of depends on what you thought the purpose of the law was and what you were expecting. If you were expecting cheaper insurance, it was going to make it easier for American families who don't have an illness but wanted insurance to get covered, then it's probably not working. If what you were expecting was for the portion of the uninsured who are, who could afford to buy insurance but were having real difficulty to do it or who didn't have any money to buy insurance but would be happy to buy it, if you were expecting those people to get covered, well, you've, you've, you've made a meaningful reduction in the uninsured rate. If you were, as I was, worried about things like innovation and what the political incentives are going to be to do to the development of pharmaceuticals and medical devices and all that, then that's a different question. If you were a provider... And you're now saying, look, they have to control costs somehow. They're about to come after my income. Can you talk about how individuals, what does the term gaming the system mean to you for individuals? So for individuals who are gaming the system, what are you doing? You are 
buying insurance when you're sick and then you are dropping it after you've gotten treatment. And a lot of the supporters of the law said, well, that won't happen. People wouldn't do that, not just because they think people are nice, but they said, look, you can't predict it. So working, <laughs> um, I think that what we can say is it is much more expensive and much less comprehensive than its architects and certainly than the people who supported this politically who didn't understand the you know various ins and outs were expecting. Some people have benefited and some people have been hurt. And whether which group is bigger is, is hard to judge. I mean, it does. It seems to me that a lot of what we're seeing going wrong is the stuff that critics were saying at the time and that supporters were sweeping under the rug. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that is a fair assessment. In general, yeah. As a critic, you know, what were my big concerns? My big concerns were, look, uh, first of all, we've got we've already got an entitlement crisis. We've taken a bunch of the ways to pay for that entitlement crisis, and we have now spent it on a new entitlement. Um, that's number one, and I think that is totally sound. Uh, and then, in fact, also as we as we said, you had a lot of pay fors in this that weren't really politically stable, so they were desperate to make this thing deficit neutral. It had to come in as not increasing the deficit, and so they had all of these wildly unrealistic uh, plans, like the. Like things like we're going to make everyone in America send a 1099 to Home Depot if they've spent more than $600 with them this year, you know, um, that was aimed to sort of make it easier to collect money from small businesses that maybe don't comply with their taxes completely, but is just crazy and was obviously never going to happen. You had something called the Class Act, which was a long-term care program that only that sort of artificially looked like it was deficit reducing, but only because of the way the forecast period works is that people would be collecting benefits just outside of the forecast period, but they'd be paying in before then. And if you looked at it long term, it was just this fiscal disaster that was obviously never going to actually come into effect. All of those things have happened. So we, there was a certain amount of gaming them. the system of of, yeah. of gaming the the way that, that the uh, deficit neutrality was calculated. Exactly. Even when they were working on the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we, we've talked a lot so far about the the problems with Obamacare, but you said something important, I think, which is that some people have lost, some people have gained. It's not clear whether one number is larger than the other. I just want to be clear, though, there are people who've gained. I mean, for instance, parents of, of young people who are up to the age of 26 can now keep their kids on their health care policy, which was not the case before. A lot of self-employed people have certainly been helped by this. And then also many people with pre-existing conditions have been helped by Obamacare. So there's, there's, there are arguments on both sides of the ledger. Sure. If you look at the age group, that, that, that under 26 age group, the administration's been throwing around a number of 3 million, which is basically everyone in that age group that's on their parents' insurance. Um, but if you look at the number of people who've actually gained insurance, um, and if you compare it to the pre-recession figure, which is the appropriate comparison, not 2009 when the unemployment rate shot up to double digits, um, then it looks like something under a million. We don't know how far these numbers are really hard to get because you're, you're dealing with small samples. There are actually not that many people in the population who fit the group, the relevant group. Um, so pre-existing conditions, we don't know how many people those were. Uh, so, for example, the administration set up this special transitional high-risk pool for people who have exactly this problem. I have a pre-existing condition. I just can't buy insurance at any price. And it turned out it was supposed to serve 400,000 people. And they Really? Had, it serves a lot more than that, I think. No, it, less. Way less. So it showed up when they, when they actually put the pool into place. 
it took them years to get to 100,000, and that was by repeatedly relaxing the requirements for getting in and massively advertising this thing. But where are you getting that data? Uh, from the number of people who signed up for the insurance, for the high, the transitional high-risk pool. Okay. Uh, so because of that, like this larger, this people we, group of people we thought was extremely large, if they were extremely large, they don't appear to have shown up to buy the high-risk pool insurance. Um, and no one, that surprised everyone. That surprised me. It surprised everyone else was just that like three quarters of the people they'd expected seemed to be missing. And if you think about really, um, in order to get to the, the hundred thousand, they had to keep relaxing the requirements. Yeah. I, I have to push back a little bit on that. Cause I know several cases of people who felt they couldn't get insurance before who get it now. And they didn't sign up for any transitional high risk insurance. They just signed up for insurance. They signed up for regular policies that they felt before they couldn't afford. That's not an issue of having a pre-existing condition and not being able to buy insurance. It is an issue of subsidies, which didn't become available until 2013. That's actually a completely separate issue. It's not a pre-existing condition problem. It's a subsidy issue. It's an income issue. That's mm-hmm. a very different group from the okay. people. There was supposed to be this large group of people who wanted to buy insurance, had money to buy insurance, were totally willing to go plunk it down, could not get insurance because an, an insurer would not write them a policy. Okay. For, for, forgive me for being ignorant, but I do think a lot of people feel that that they couldn't afford insurance before, even if an, if an insurer would write them a policy because of a condition they had, that they would call a pre-existing condition. It may not be the official definition of that, but it's still, I still think that, that that's the way people look at it. So that is, that is a third thing, which is that people in America think that insurance basically should cover everything and not cost more than a cell phone plan. Right, right. Uh, fair point. And that's, that, it's literally, that is literally like the conversation I've had with I've had it, basically every journalist who works on this has had this conversation where someone's like, you know, well, it was $400 a month for this insurance. It's like, well, how much did it cost? I shouldn't have to pay more for it for my, than my iPhone. Well, but this saves your life. The iPhone is awesome, but it doesn't save your life. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi. So the concern here is going back to the adverse selection death spiral is that a lot of the insurers in the exchanges are under financial pressure. If those pressures get worse, if they go under or drop out, the system kind of collapses and we've got to come up with some other way of fixing it. Right. Right. What we end up what we end up with is the individual market basically going away. They have not gotten the people they need into those exchanges yet, which is the young, healthy people who are basically supposed to subsidize everyone else. If they don't get those people in. Um, there is, I think, a real danger that enrollment will start going down after having gone up 
uh, just because the the cost of the insurance without subsidies is is so high. And even this is the little known thing is that the subsidies are actually capped as a percentage of GDP. So there's this gross really domestic a, product. In other words, yeah. the, uh, yes, the percentage of the size of the U.S. economy. It's this totally bizarre number. 0.504% of GDP. Uh, we're set to about $100, $100 uh, billion dollars a year. However, if the premiums keep going up, if insurers are dropping out, then we are going to hit that cap. And at that point, things you know, the administration is really, whoever is the administration at that point, is really going to have to start thinking about what do you do with this thing? Uh, because you could be in for a very rapid progression of once the subsidies go away, people stop buying, and then you're in trouble. So, Megan, you once wrote, the existence of a problem does not, therefore, imply the existence of a solution. Well, our, <laughs> our whole show is about solutions. And, and having said that, you do have some ideas for how we could address these problems with Obamacare. So how do I think about healthcare? is that there are things for which people demand is effectively unlimited and almost no one could ever save enough money to pay for them right there are cancer treatments that cost a million dollars when you're when you're all done neonate neonates is a good example of this where like it costs like a million dollars to put a kid through a neonatal unit it doesn't matter who you are especially at the age at which people are having children you are never going to save up that money um so we want to deal with those problems while letting ordinary people make their own decisions empowering them to think about things are scarce what do I value as much as possible? So um, what I would propose is this. The government steps in and says, look, after any healthcare costs, 100% of it, after 15 to 20% of your adjusted gross income. So in, so, so in other yeah. words, oh, let, let's break that down. So let's say your family income is $50,000 a year. Mm-hmm. If you spend more than eight or $10,000 a year on health care, then the yeah. government picks up the, the total cost of that above a certain amount. Right. And I assume the aim of this, the thing that you're suggesting, is to avoid bankruptcies because of health care. Exactly. I want people deciding on their own what they want. What do they value? Um, and they're not going to do that with, with their neonate, right? You don't make decisions about whether your child is going to, uh, is, it should live or die based on money. This is why we, we have pet insurance for our dog, right? We buy it not because we can't afford to do the treatments, but because we don't ever want to be thinking about whether it's worth X amount of money to, to save Fitzgerald's life or to make him more comfortable or so forth. Um, so insulate people from the part that they really can't afford. And now people could insure the gap if they wanted, but fewer people will precisely because it's a well-defined gap. And it looks, by the way, a lot like some of these deductibles um, that we have now. So this is not like this is some revolutionary thing that where I'm really depriving people of something they have now. The problem is that people hate that. They, this is the thing they don't want, right? Is they don't want to ever have to make any decisions about healthcare with regard to price. And the problem with that, in turn, is that what they demand is, on the one hand, and you see this in Sanders' care, uh, Bernie Sanders' health care plan. Bernie Sanders' plan that <laughs> yeah. the Medicare right. for all, that the We're government have takes over everything. We're going to have coverage for everything. There's going to be no rationing of treatments. You'll get everything you want. Well, no system works this way. Someone has to decide because goods are scarce. We cannot spend 100% of our national income on healthcare. Um, and so, you know, the question is, do you want to decide or do you want a government bureaucrat to decide? I want a system that forces you to decide. Um, the problem is that people hate having making their own decisions. Um, and so what ends up is that they demand that no decision be made. And then a hidden bureaucrat that they don't know about makes the decision for them. And in other countries that works pretty well. 
except that it's starting to break down, especially in English language countries, because people are finding out what's available in the United States. The easiest way to do it, right, is just that people don't even know the treatment exists. But we're seeing, <laughs> if we look at some of the numbers, for example, on, on cancer care in, in the UK, there's a lot of drugs that are commonly used in the US that really aren't, um, they don't cover over there. And, and they so- just say no, right. And the problem with that, though, is that then, as people are finding out, you saw a big scandal with Herceptin, both in the UK and in New Zealand, for example, um, which was both over whether it should be used and then when it should be used and how long the course of treatment. So in New Zealand, they would give it for less time and they would give it at only a later stage of cancer than, than you would get it for here. When women found out that women with breast cancer in the, in the United States who had stage two cancer could get Herceptin and get a full 12 week course instead of the seven week course they might get on New Zealand if they got it at all, they freaked out and they lobbied the National Health Authority, which eventually caved in. Nevertheless, um, you would get, wouldn't you, if you had the government saying, we'll pay 100% of health care costs when it gets cripplingly expensive for individuals to pay it, wouldn't you have providers gaming the system where you get up to a certain level and a doctor goes, oh, sure, you need that operation, but don't worry, the government will pay for it? Yes, but uh, you would. Right. You would get people saying, oh, well, I guess we'll do our knee surgery this year. Right. Because you've already capped out because you had back surgery or whatever. Um, Yes. But there are limits. First of all, it's actually, you know, when someone's had a really serious, expensive illness is is usually the last time a doctor wants to operate on them because it's, first of all, bad for the doctor. It shows up in his statistics. So there are actually kind of limits on how much you can game this. Uh, And we're not, I should say, talking about covering, say, plastic surgery. By its very definition, this is a wonky show. Uh, Sorry. Can can you just explain (laughs) health exchanges? Uh, So the health exchanges are basically, it is an open marketplace that shows you um, when you go to buy insurance, you put in all your information, you get an account, you go and you log in, and it shows you all of your insurance options within the state. Those options are priced at now four legally mandated levels that correspond to kind of what percentage it's called actuarial value is the technical term but it's basically what percentage of your expected healthcare expenditures will they cover so you've diagnosed this problem you've come up you've given us some possible solutions and told us why they would be hard to implement where do you see this going where are we going to be in five or ten years um, I think that we are going to join, uh, you know, supporters of Obamacare like to say every other civilized nation. We're going to join every other civilized nation and having endless squabbling about health care be one of the dominant features of our political life. Uh, precisely because like these trade-offs, they're expensive, they're unpleasant, no one likes that they exist, and everyone wants the government to make them go away. This is the other irony, is that aside from passing never-never bills to repeal Obamacare, no one in either party has any appetite for doing health care. It cost the Democrats a ton of seats. It cost them control of the House. Arguably, it also ended up uh, costing, ultimately costing them control of the Senate. And no one has any appetite for going in this incredibly contentious topic and reopening that bitter, bitter battle. Megan McArdle, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was great. Oh, yeah. Mark, really Megan, fantastic. Fascinating yeah. show. I think, no, no I, are you kidding? I, I love it. I think we're going to run over our okay. usual half hour because we have so much great material here. <laughs> and, and your explanations yeah. are, are just so spot on. Yeah. 
Before we start our contentious discussion, Jim, a plug wait, for wait, downloads. Wait. I'm not. I'm not agreeing that it's contentious. I think we're doing an attempt to meet in the middle of on some very uh, complicated issues. Anyway, what we can meet in the middle about is is the importance of of downloading on our show. And that is, if you possibly can, uh, not only listen to us, but, but download. It makes a difference to the, to the folks who put together the algorithms at iTunes and other important services so that we have more visibility and, and more listeners. So I, we get, we, I always love seeing the comments on iTunes. Please leave those comments and leave those ratings, especially if you like the show. Here's one from the other day. Uh, Judy, kudos. Uh, Richard and Jim are fun to listen to as they discuss important topics, everything from climate change and pushing back against extremism to personal debt and raising our kids. Instead of complaining, these guys are hungry for fixes. They don't always agree, but are both positive. Refreshing show. Love that. <laughs> Love that. Jim, I see the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare in a very different light than you do. And that is, I do think it's an improvement on what we had before for three pretty solid reasons. One, that a lot of people who face the desperation and the suffering of not having um, health care coverage at all are now insured. Um, two, that a lot of parents, including me, who were very anxious about their tw- early 20-something kids, um, were able to cover them on their insurance policy. And three, a lot of people who found it very difficult or couldn't buy insurance at all are now covered. And that is a real reduction in emotional suffering and anxiety for a very large number of people. So to me, on balance, despite the problems of Obamacare, it's, it's, a, it's a less bad system than what we had before. Yeah. Well, no, we don't agree on this. I mean, it's no question, as she said, every government program has um, certain groups of winners. And in this case, obviously, People who find themselves in, you know, middle or later life without without being able to get insurance, something had to be done to fix that problem. Did we need to rewire the entire healthcare establishment to do it? I I say we didn't. And, you know, there's a, a concept in the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. We had a patient that was sick. And we, we performed radical surgery on every part of the body at the same time instead of going in and fixing one problem at a time, carefully looking at how it worked. Was it going to work? They went in and they rewired everything. And now we're seeing the consequences. But in most of the country, people are paying a whole lot more. In some states, it's as much as 35 percent more. And then almost everywhere, people are seeing these policies that have these really, really high deductibles. You know, when I was when I was in my 20s, I had catastrophic health care. I was a mountain climber who knew when I was going to wind up in a helicopter heading to an emergency room, you know. But I didn't pay, have insurance to pay for, for uh, you know, a blister. I, had, I only had insurance for super expensive, catastrophic issues, and it was dirt, dirt cheap. We used to have that before the government started insisting that every insurance policy pay for every condition. So I I think the system was very wasteful before it continues to be wasteful. We need to have a much better system of reducing the the cost to the system because we can't can't afford it. I mean, for instance, because we're spending like 16 or 17 percent of our total gross national product on health. Okay, so it's too much. And there's also a huge amount of waste when it comes to uh, administrative costs. I mean, I don't have access to my patient records. And 
if I lived in France, it would be much easier for me to have those. I mean, one of the things I need, I think we really need to learn and be a bit humble about is that there are some countries overseas that do have aspects of their healthcare systems that are a lot better than ours. I'll give, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to the overseas thing. But on the question, is it too expensive? Uh, one person I got to, to interview a, a bunch of times is the medical inventor, Dean Kame, and one of the one of the most innovative inventors in, in America, he always would look at this. He'd say, you know, people spend more on on building football stadiums than they do uh, building hospitals in some areas. Is 18, 20 percent of GDP really so much? We have we we want to live long, healthy lives. Older people get hip replacements, knee replacements, um, all kinds of treatments for degenerative conditions. Yeah, it's expensive. We're really, really rich. What's wrong with spending twenty percent of GDP on healthcare? I mean, plenty if it's fee for service rather than fee for outcome. There needs to be a greater concentration on looking at results. For instance, there are many other countries that have longer life expectancy than we have in the United States by at least several years. Yeah, but is that healthcare or is that lifestyle? You know, it's well, very in, hard in, to in the tease. Nordic countries. It's lifestyle, and they spend a lot of money on promoting better better healthcare and and getting people to understand. Uh, that 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 there are certain results from having a healthier right. lifestyle. We but don't do that. That here. may not have a lot to do with insurance. I mean, you know, you have to separate medical treatment from life expectancy. Of course, there's a re- relationship, but you can't assume that if people in Sweden live eight years longer, no, that's true. It's that's because true. they're going to the doctor. But, but every we shouldn't other week. assume that they're not either. I mean, we should we should be a little more humble. I feel and look at some of the lessons of of other countries. For instance, have more community health care, have a better communication between doctor and nurses and also a much better sharing of insurance records. The idea that one insurance company yeah. has a completely different set of health care forms than another company is ridiculous. That, that is ridiculous. Um, but let me ask you, now you've lived in the UK. Where would you rather be in the hospital if you had cancer? If I had cancer, I'd rather be in this country. But if, if I was like my one of my sisters who doesn't have steady employment, I'd rather be in the UK. And I have noticed that in the UK, it's the most popular national institution, the national healthcare system, which may be derided here, but is enormously popular in the UK. So, um, so the, what I see here is I, I see a system that was a mess, and that. We needed a bipartisan—our show is called How Do We Fix It? It's all about meeting the middle, finding common ground. We needed to find some common ground to fix the problem. There were a lot of smaller-scale solutions that could have been implemented. They passed it with enormous secrecy, violating—you know, they they changed—they didn't follow the usual order of the Senate to pass it. They used every sneaky trick in the book that if Republicans did it, people would still be howling. I'm making a claim that— Compromise is important, and you can't blame all the put all the blame for the lack of compromise on the Republicans. Era. Okay, I, I I agree with you on that, uh, and I also agree with you. I think on Megan's key solution, which is the government picks up a hundred percent of healthcare costs above a certain amount. We can argue about the certain amount, but the idea that most people should be responsible for the cost of their healthcare coverage up to a certain level is a really interesting solution yeah. and something that I think that we can take away from this show where both of us disagree that that is constructive. Right. And she talked about the importance of price signals. You know, people want to insulate people from having to, to make pr- pr- 
choices on price for healthcare. But so much of it, you know, so many things do have, you do have options. Doctors should be giving you prices, talking to you about the, the, the different options. So I'm totally with her on that. On how, the, you know, we pick up those prices over a certain percentage, it's hard to say exactly how that would work. But in principle, we need to do something like that. Obviously, we can't let people be bankrupted by, you know, things like having a premature baby or, or, or you know, or really serious, condition or serious or, cancer. Yes. So we needed to fix those problems. I'm totally on board with that. And I think that her, her approach looks um, hard to implement, but morally and um, economically the right thing to do. I think the name of this show is How Do We Sort of Fix It? <laughs> yeah, no question about <laughs> I'm it. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Mays. Our producer joining us in the studio, Miranda Schaefer. And uh, our audio engineer is Denise Barbarita here at Mono Lisa Studios in beautiful uptown Manhattan. Music's by Lou Stravinsky. I'm Richard Davies. The show is produced by Davies Content. We produce digital audio for nonprofits and businesses. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.